What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I have a returning guest. It is none other than Lara Bazelon. All right. So those of you who missed the last episode, you definitely need to check it out. We talked about her previous book called Rectify. Uh, Lara, she is a just amazing lawyer. She's also a law professor, but she spends a lot of time helping wrongfully convicted people. So that's what we discussed in the book uh, about her book, Rectify. And yeah, she's back because she has a brand new book called Ambitious Like a Mother. And I love the book. Uh, if any of you are following me on Twitter, you saw me just ranting and raving about how amazing it was. I loved it even as a father, which you'll hear in this discussion, like I really, really enjoyed it, right? Because uh, a lot of us can, you know, feel guilty about just working super hard and taking time away from our kids and all this other stuff. But anyways, this episode, I was originally planning to have it come out next week, but uh, Laura and I, we, we actually had to reschedule the podcast as I was super sick last week and we moved it to Friday and we literally hopped on our scheduled call within, uh, within like about an hour of the news that the Supreme court officially overturned Roe v. Wade. So I wanted to, you know, get it out there this week because, uh, yeah, obviously we, we chatted about it because it's. It's directly tied into the the topic of Laura's book, Ambitious Like a Mother, right? So her book is discussing, you know, parenthood as a mom and all these things, but how how will these, you know, abortion rights being taken away affect women who want to pursue, uh, you know, uh, their careers and their dreams and all these other things, right, due to uh, unplanned pregnancies? So. Uh, Lara has just, you know, a lot of uh, insight on what what we can, you know, see happening in the future to, you know, women all over the country, especially, you know, in these states where the abortion laws are going to be either A, tightened up like like a ton or B, just completely, you know, revoked, criminalized and all that stuff. So I think this is important because we need to, you know, discuss these kind of like downstream effects right of forcing women to have children but one of the thing, things is like i am someone who is all about solutions and trust me if you're like me lately <laughs> lately you've been getting really pessimistic even like nihilistic like we keep going out there and voting and what the hell i even bring this up to laura but you know we start talking about potential solutions. I ask her, I'm like, what are our options? Even though she's not a constitutional lawyer, she is a lawyer. She starts talking about this stuff. She's, uh, you know, uh, very familiar with just like the politics of it all and all that kind of stuff. What we need to do to, uh, you know, get this fixed, right? And Laura, she, you know, she's a huge advocate for, you know, women standing up and fighting back. And she talks about that in this episode as well. So anyways, like I said, I wanted to get this episode out this week because this topic is, you know, fresh in our minds right now. And we need to educate ourselves about what, what can happen later on to these women and how it's going to affect them pursuing their goals, their dreams, and all these other things. So make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Laura over on, uh, 
Twitter. Um, make sure you grab a copy of her book, Ambitious Like a Mother. I don't care if you're a mother, a father, uh, a future parent, whatever it is, grab this book. It's super duper important. Also, down in the description, uh, Laura and I, we also discussed um, a new piece from Jill Filipovich. Uh, she's also a previous guest. She's a journalist, but she has a Substack where she focuses on a lot of topics uh, around feminism. And she's been writing a ton about what's going on with Roe v. Wade, how it's going to affect people and all that. So I've linked one of her pieces down below. But since we recorded this on uh, Friday, Jill has written multiple pieces. So make sure you subscribe to Jill. There's a paid option, but she releases a lot of this stuff for free especially right now she just wants to get the information out there and report on this and give opinions and all that kind of stuff so head down to the description and before we get started if you're new make sure you're following the podcast subscribe to it i read hundreds of nonfiction books every year i love to educate myself and i'm forever curious so i'm always reading bringing authors on and all that stuff so make sure you subscribe to the podcast and if you're not yet make sure you're following me over on instagram and twitter uh, i love chatting with all of you just getting your opinions on things getting book recommendations and all that kind of stuff and you don't you won't miss any of the upcoming episodes or any of the projects i'm working on i've been writing a lot more lately as well over on my Substack. so make sure you're following me at the rewired soul on instagram and twitter all right but anyways super long intro but without further ado here's my conversation with laura basilon about her brand new book ambitious like a mother All right. Hello, Laura. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for returning. This is your second time on the podcast because you wrote a new book, fantastic book. So real quick, for those who missed the last episode or are unfamiliar with you, can you introduce yourself to the lovely sure. audience out there? I am a law professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, and I direct a criminal and racial justice clinic. Before that, I was the director of a small innocence project in L.A. at Loyola. Before that, I was a federal public defender, and I am the mom of two amazing kids who are now, oh, my God, 13 and 11. Oh, yeah. Our kids are around the same age. My son is 13 too is is yours is your 13 year old kind of getting into that weird teenager phase yet he is super into sports not yet into any kind of dating thing and yes super into his phone yeah <laughs> yep yep sounds sounds about right <laughs> but uh but yeah new book ambitious like a mother so i loved it uh you sent me an early copy even though it took me a while to catch up i actually ended up just buying uh the audio version since i listened anyways and and yeah so what inspired this book because i think you mentioned it like you're you're like you're about to write it or in the early phases on the last uh last time you were on but yeah what made you want to sit down and write this thing I kept getting this question, and I think a lot of mothers get it who have full-time jobs, which is, how do you do it all? How do you balance everything? And I found that question really frustrating because it superimposes on women this idea that we're supposed to have everything in balance all the time, That like that's even possible, mm. or that's the goal. And so in frustration, I wrote this op-ed for the New York Times that was published in 2019, and they called it 
I've picked my job over my kids. It was one of those ones where like the editor picked the title. Yes. Yeah. Nice. And it went viral and people had sort of split screen reactions to it. I mean, some people just read the title and told me that my kids needed to be taken away from me. Other people read the whole thing and said, I totally get this. Like sometimes when you have a job that requires a lot of your energy and attention, your kids can't come first. And it's not to say it's all the time, but it's true some of the time. And that's something that we just take for granted when it comes to men who are fathers. Mm -hmm. And you're just kind of explaining that it's equally true for the mothers. And yet that's a controversial point, even in the 21st century. And then as a result of the op-ed, just all these women started emailing and texting and finding me on social media with their stories. And so it occurred to me that there was kind of a bigger point to be made just beyond the sort of narrow, here's this 800 word piece that I wrote about how much I hate the term work-life balance. Beyond mm. that, what are all these working mothers doing across, across race and class and across industry and geography? how are they seeing the role of work and family? And so I decided to kind of explore that and also like dive into the research. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I was, I was like singing the praises of the book as I was reading it. Cause yeah, I'm, I'm a father, but you know, I could, I could relate a lot. And here's just like, when I first kind of noticed it, um, I actually just celebrated 10 years sober yesterday. Right. And Congratulations. thank you. Thank you. But yeah, when I first got sober, I just remember, and this will tie into work. I promise. Uh, people were like, you have to put your sobriety above everything. And I'm like, oh, above my kid. Like, what are you talking about? I can't put anything above my kid. Right. But then it started to make sense because it was like, if I don't take care of me, I'm no good for him. Right. But I started realizing this kind of like this little bit of selfishness to help with the bigger picture, you know, even though there was like some guilt and things like that. But when I finally started getting back into the workforce and stuff, like I remember feeling a lot of guilt for how much I was working because I had to start completely from scratch. I had nothing. And now look at me, I got a nice little like ring light and internet and all that stuff, you know? But uh, yeah, I, I remember just a lot of that guilt and then like reading your book, I'm like, she gets it, you know? So is that, is that something that, that you've experienced? Like when you're traveling, like you travel a lot, you work and do all sorts of different projects. Is that guilt in the back of your head or do you just like kind of shut that thing up and be like, hey, I'm doing this for a good reason? I wish I could take my own medicine and tell you that I have <laughs> shut that voice up. But the truth is it's always there. And I think your parallel is really poignant and important and no one's made that parallel. It's fascinating, right? That the idea that you would elevate your sobriety would somehow make you a worse father when mm -hmm. so obvious, at least to me, that the converse is true, that if you don't take care of yourself, if you aren't healthy for your kids, you're not going to be a good parent. And I think the analogy that you make makes sense. And I think the analogy to work makes sense because if you're not happy in your job, and also if you're not able to hold down a job and support your family, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how much you love your kids. They're going to live in a really unstable environment. Same thing for being unable to maintain sobriety. And so it's this idea that we have to put them first. We have to put them first. We have to put them first without understanding that if we don't take care of ourselves, we're not going to be able to take care of them. Yeah. And to your question, 
it becomes harder, I think, when it's discretionary, right? Do I really need to go on this business trip? Do mm. I really need to accept the speaking engagement? Is this really going to be the difference between paying the rent and not paying the rent? And the answer to that is no. And I think it's at those times when the guilt voice pipes up and says, you could have gone to the soccer game. You could have gone to the ballet recital. And instead you're sitting in a hotel room by yourself after you gave a talk. And was that really worth the trade-off? Yeah. It's those times that I think get more tricky, right? Because it's less existential in that moment. Yeah, yeah. When it's kind of like the optional thing. And, you know, something I was just thinking about. So, so actually my first year sober was in California. I had to get out of Las Vegas. Surprisingly, there's a lot of drugs and alcohol here, you know? So I got out of Las Vegas. I was in California for a year, but I didn't see my son that entire year. I saw him once. I came down for Thanksgiving. It was only like two days. But anyways, that made me, you know, just so depressed, right? So like missing, you know, I can go through the entire year, Easter, you know, birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, all of that stuff, right? And I had to, I had to remind myself, like, Chris, this is a very small portion of time for like the rest of your life, right? And that's kind of what I see with the work and those little things that you're kind of talking about, where I'm like, you know, is me missing this one this one thing, like, is he just, you know, is my son going to become a serial killer? He's like, you know, my dad, he tried to come to as many things as possible, but this one time, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, it's like trying to find those, those little trade-offs and everything like that. But something I want to ask you since, especially since uh, you work with a lot of like uh, underserved communities. So here's, here's kind of my theory but if you look at like deaths of despair and those numbers it's not as much of a theory i think there's like a little bit more evidence but anyways a lot of issues we see with children come from parents right and it's because of stress and that stress is because they are broke you know what i mean and i i think about this and it almost seems like in some cases when people are trying to pursue things and you know uh, whether it's a career or just working so they can put food on the table but if they switch that and prioritize the qu the quantity of time rather than the quality. Now you're a stressed out parent. Are you really doing any good for your kid if you're coming home and just screaming at your children because you can't pay the bills because you're not working enough, but you're just like, oh, well, just me physically being in the same space. That's, that's fine. Does that kind of make sense? Like, do you think that kind of message towards like, you know, women and those communities as a, as a whole is kind of like, I don't know, counterproductive because it can affect the children in like an even worse way if they aren't just being able to pay their bills, you know? I do. There's a study that I talk about a little bit in my book that examines this exact phenomenon of the difference between the number of hours that a stay-at-home parent, usually the mother, spends with children versus a full-time working parent, whether it's the mother or the father. And what they really found is that, well, obviously, if you're at home, your hours with the children are much, much higher. In terms of the one-on-one -on -one time where you're focused on doing something with your child, whatever it is, playing catch, doing Legos, Barbie, I don't know, whatever it is that you're doing with little kids, coloring, drawing, that time is generally the same, whether the parents stay at home or work. And so this, it's this concept of quality over quantity, as you were, mm -hmm. as you were saying, and that that's the time, the interactive time that is where a lot of the parenting and the nurturing happens, which is not to say that when you're in the same room as your child and you're each 
involved in your own tasks, there isn't some benefit to that, to having your parent just sort of around because you can ask them a question as you and I know very well, you know, we can be sitting there and our kid can ignore us for 45 minutes. And then as soon as we are busy with something that we're doing and our concentration is kicked in, they immediately want our attention, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're not there, that doesn't happen. But I do think you put your finger on the real crux of the matter, which that it, which is that it is about quality. I mean, I have a question for you, which is, Mm. you know, you made a decision to, to get sober and that involved not seeing your son for a really long time. And I'm wondering if you feel that he holds that against you. Uh, It's funny because we were just watching a show the other day. What was it? Oh, it was the new docuseries on Netflix. Uh, God, it's about the, the fundamental, uh, fundamentalist Mormon religion. Right. And like, it's like, you know, pretty cultish, but anyways, this woman didn't see her daughter for like a year and the daughter didn't remember her. Right. Like that's kind of beating our heads. And I, I know that happens, but anyways, my son was three when I got sober, didn't have an issue. He totally remembered me. There was no like hiccup miss space. He's like, I said, he's 13. Now I've asked him a couple times, like throughout the years, like even like three, four years into my sobriety, he did not even remember me being gone for like a year. Now I will tell you this, even 10 years sober, there's a lot of internalized guilt, right? And I have to make sure that doesn't turn into, and okay, now I get to ricochet back to you. I got to make sure that doesn't turn into me like overcompensating or spoiling, right? Because of that kind of guilt, you know, because even though I got sober when he was three, that was the first three years of his life when I was a hot mess and, you know, not good. And I wasn't even like really present. Right. So even 10 years later, sometimes it's like, Hey dad, can I have this or do this? And I'm just like, well, Chris, you used to be a drug addict. So maybe you should just buy him that. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm curious, like, do you, do you ever catch yourself doing that? Like compensating? And do you have any strategies for like reeling that in and being like, Hey, no, you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's not exactly a precise parallel, but when my kids were, let's see, it was 2012. So they were three and one. Mm. I took a job in LA and I lived in San Francisco. So I had to commute and this went on for three years. So every week I would leave on Monday and come back on Thursday and I didn't see them for those days. And, and literally that went on for three and a half years, including in the summer. And sometimes I really wondering was that was that damaging to them right that I was essentially gone half the week half the time during those those formative years and it's interesting they have no memory of it either they just literally were so young that they don't remember that entire period of of my life so I so and and like you I have a lot of internalized guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Even though I don't have any objective evidence to suggest yeah. that it was some kind of lasting harm. And the work that I was doing was was very important to me, I think very important to the people that I was able to help. And also long-term, very important to me having the job that I have now, which actually does give me much more flexibility and, and ability to be with them. But in any event, to answer your question, I do find myself overcompensating sometimes. And part of it too, is that like, and my parents were, were very, very strict. And I, I'm not sure 
while I am a disciplined, high-achieving person, I'm not sure that all of those rules made a ton of sense, right? So mm. like, you know, we were never allowed to have candy bars or Ooh. sugar cereal. And it's not like I have that in my house. But, you know, if we're at the Walmart and they like want a bag of Doritos, usually I just say yes to that because I don't think a bag of Doritos is really going to kill yeah. that. Whereas we have these very hard line rules and that's kind of a silly example, but we had hard line rules about everything, about, about dating, about curfews. And I just, I'm not sure whether it's overcompensating or whether it's feeling like I'm not sure that was necessary or even helpful. And I find myself, I don't know if you do in this, in this balance or gray area of really wanting my kids to be honest with me and not hide things from me. I want them to feel like they can come to me with anything. And at the same time, I don't want them to feel like they can do everything. So I was not able to talk to my parents about sex, about drug use, about alcohol, about smoking, because those, those were just verboten in, in my house. And of course, you know, I did all those things. So mm -hmm. I, I struggle with limits and boundaries because I think some are necessary. And at the same time, I don't want my kids to feel like they're going to live kind of a double life and lie to me all the time. I, you know, Laura, I'm, I'm just remembering how much I love talking with you. You're like talking. I'm like, we're the same person, right? <laughs> because yes, like that's, yeah, that's like, I can, I can relate to all of that. Like so, so much. And and yeah, I, I don't know. And sometimes I, I also wonder if like, so you, you've done a lot of like very good work to help people. And you talk about this a little bit in the book, like the time you spent was like helping people like as a public defender. Right. And when, when I was about two, two or three years sober, I, um, I started working at a rehab clinic and I worked a ton. I had a cell phone on me 24 seven because, um, I, uh, I mostly dealt with people who left treatment after they graduated. Like if they were about to relapse, call me, I'm available 24 seven, you know, from the rehabs, you know, for profit incentives. It was, if they do relapse, get them back to our facility. But anyways, I was always around. So I worked a ton, but you know, I did justify like I'm helping people. I'm doing something good. Right. And you do a lot of really good work. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that, like, if you think, or even with the, the, the women or even men who've like reached out to you, like, do you, do you see that? Like, I guess, I guess a good way to phrase it is like, do you think it's less easy to be ambitious in the way that you're talking about in the book? If you're doing it for like these very, like, I don't know, shallow reasons, right? Like just for money. You know, like if it was not like doing something to really help, like, do you think it's a little bit, it might be a little bit harder. Do you think that guilt <laughs> might weigh a little bit more, you know? It's, it's a really interesting point. And I think it's easier to say I was gone half the time for three years because I was trying to get an innocent person out of prison, which is my explanation then I was gone half the week because I was trying to make $7 million rather than $2 million, right? Yeah. It lands differently with your audience. I, I think part of it is, is class because for people who are really mm. working to have that second, third, fourth 
house and the keeping up with the Joneses and being that that one percent. I, I do think I do think it's a harder case to make, right? It's just easier to seem greedy and selfish. Yeah. Although I also think that a lot of people who work that hard to make a lot of money have have specific end goals. So I'll just give you an example. I interviewed this woman named Stacy Francis who grew up pretty working class and her, her grandmother couldn't afford to leave an abusive relationship and eventually died sort of as a result of it. And so when Stacy went to college and then on to business school, she was just determined to make a lot of money. She never wanted to be in that situation. But what she ended up doing was founding her own financial firm, which is incredibly successful. And then she parallel runs a nonprofit called Savvy mm. Ladies, which is dedicated toward helping women get out of abusive relationships, get help and, and get training to get jobs. So she worked an unbelievable amount. I think she took like two days off with each kid. And she does make a ton of money. And she said, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, what I do, I don't spend all of it on my charity, but I spend a lot of it on it. And my charity wouldn't exist if I didn't have that money. I'm not saying that she's representative of every person, but I think that particular kind of ambition is, is laudable, right? I mean, you mm -hmm. want people to be doing that. Yeah. I guess the other thing I would say about the kind of ambition that you're describing you know, when you were working in the rehab center is that it's a kind of zealousness because you're invested in other people's health and welfare and survival. And so, you know, there's going to be times where you're with your son and you're still going to take that call because that person needs you. Mm -hmm. And at some points they need you more than your son does. Not yeah. all the time, but some of the time. And so this sort of idea that like there's this hermetically sealed world where when people need help who are in rehab, you do not return their calls if you're with your kid because he automatically has to have your full attention, yeah. all five senses of the word all the time. To me, seems not like a great thing in yeah. terms of balancing the relative interests in the world. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I remember you discussing this like in your book because there's this idea and I'm a very uh, fact-based, evidence-based person, right? Like, I'm just like, here, show me the data. Like, if you showed me a study that was like, hey, taking a call from somebody with like a, a higher priority, right? Like in that moment, uh, that's gonna traumatize your son for life. If you showed me like some really hardcore evidence, I'd be like, well, shit, I am not gonna pick up my phone, right? But it's just not there. If I walked into my son's room, and he's sleeping. But if I woke him up right now and I asked him, I'm like, hey, remember all those times I like picked up my phone to help like addicts? <laughs> He'd be like, what the hell are you talking about, dad? And my son, by the way, he's like in National Junior Honor Society. He got a little award for straight A's. Like the kid is killing it, right? And both of us, we're, you know, they're in a, like a, the split home situation, right? And our kids are doing fine, you know? And I, I also try to share that message too. There's a lot of people like, oh, this is going to mess up kids, which it does. It can, you know, depending on how your relationship is with the uh, kids. Parent. But anyways, kids doing fine. And by the way, totally brain farted a minute ago and forgot. But when you were talking about how you wanted your kids to just talk to you, quick story. When I was uh, a few years sober and I wanted to learn more about addiction, the first book I picked up was Clean by David Sheff. He's the guy who wrote that book, Beautiful Boy. Right. So I picked up clean. He wrote an amazing book, breaking down the science of addiction, what treatments work, what don't. It just completely educated me. But anyways, one of the things that is said in that book was like, like the, the main way to, uh, you know, prevent your kid from becoming an addict is to make sure they can talk to you. Right. So with what you were saying, I'm like, 
yes, because I grew up in the same kind of household. Uh, we didn't talk about feelings, emotions, sex, nothing, like not a thing. So that has been my number one priority. And I remind my son maybe once every couple months, maybe more that I'm like, just make sure you can always talk to me so far. And, and there's no way to really know, right? Do I know what he's not telling me? But I always want him to know. And at least, you know, I'm covering my own vibe. Be like, hey, you knew the door was always open, kid. But yeah, that is my top thing. And we've, we've talked about these things. We've discussed, you know, he's uh, about to enter eighth grade, which is the year before high school out here and stuff. And it seems like we're able to talk about all sorts of things. And, you know, going back to like the, the, the like helpful work too, we had a lot of events for my rehab and my son was six, seven years old. I brought him to those events. I, I taught him about it. You know, um, I, I helped him understand addiction and, you know, where I come from and all these things, you know, and I broke it down for him in the kid level. I'm like, Hey, you love chocolate. Imagine if you started eating chocolate and you just couldn't stop and you just ate it until you threw up. Right. I'm like, that's what these people are dealing with. That's what we're trying to help them with. Right. But, you know, I'm hoping to pass these lessons on to my son, because as you probably know, there's a lot of stigma around addiction. There's a lack of empathy. And I want to make sure my son doesn't turn into one of those jerks. And maybe just maybe we're instilling some good values and lessons like the woman you're speaking about who runs that, you know, nonprofit and like tries to help women get out of abusive relationships. Like if nothing else, we're being an example of like, hey, dedicate some time, dedicate some, you know, whatever resources and try to help other people. Like, I think that helps balance things out a little bit, as long as I'm not just like justifying. But it also leads me into something that stuck out to me at the very start of your book. I believe it was your mom who told you. And like, I was like, yes. And she was like, don't ever be like at the financial mercy of anyone. Can you kind of like break that down and explain how that kind of played into just your life philosophy around work and ambition and all that? Sure. I'm happy to do that. But first, I have to tell you that I'm <laughs> such a fan of you taking your son to those events. That is exactly the kind of thing that I do with my kids. I think it is really important for them to understand mm. some of the bigger issues out there, how much people are struggling and what you specifically are doing to help them, what you are doing when you're away from them. Mm. Me, them being able to actually see that in real time is so important. And I'll just give you a quick example and then I'll answer your question. Mm. Um, when, when our now recalled DA, Chase Boudin was uh, elected, he started this commission to look into wrongful convictions. And it's this volunteer commission of five people and he put me in charge of it. And I'd been working really hard on it. And, and at times taking calls, as you say, as you and I talked about during dinner, things like that. Anyway, our first case came to a conclusion and the ruling was on April the 18th, which also happens to be my son's birthday. And mm -hmm. I said to my kids, I'm going to court because the judge is deciding this case that my commission worked on for a year and a half. And would you, would you like to come and, and meet Mr. Syria? It's who's the wrongfully convicted person who's going to be present in court and his family and my commission members and the DA and, and, and everyone and all these students. And they, they wanted to go. And so mm. my son spent part of his birthday in court watching awesome. Mr. Syria get exonerated. And I think it was a really amazing thing that we were all able to experience as a family, that they got to meet him, that they got to see what I was doing when I was busy talking on the phone or going to meetings and all of those things. But anyway, 
So I'm a huge fan of what you are doing because I think it's really important to mm -hmm. show our kids what we're doing when we're not there. Okay, so on to your question, my mom drilled that lesson into us because she grew up really on the edge of poverty as a result of her dad very tragically and unexpectedly dying when he was 31 and she was three. This is in the 1940s and her mother didn't have a job and didn't really have any expectation of ever working. And so as a result, she she the only job she could really get was being a teacher. It paid affordably. It didn't pay mm. summer. And so my mom believed that her ability to work full time and make money for herself was really important because you could never predict what's going to happen. And even though she met my dad and they're still married and my dad is very successful, she never stopped working. She went to medical school. She's a physician. Mm. And she really drilled that into us. And I'm glad because like you, my relationship did not work out. And so as a divorced single parent, I'm responsible for making sure that I can pay my mortgage and buy food and repair appliances when they break, which let me tell you in the last six months, every single appliance <laughs> of mine has broken. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do that if I had made different choices and been dependent on this person. First of all, I wouldn't be able to get out of the relationship, which was not working out and not good for me and not good for my kids. And second of all, I would have had to either litigate to get child support and alimony, which I, I really had no interest in doing, or ask yeah. my parents for help. And I didn't have any interest in doing that either. And so as horrible as the divorce was and as heartbreaking and sad as it was, I never worried about the financial part of it. And mm -hmm. not worrying about money is huge. Yeah. 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 It's uh, that. You know, that's something like we talk about when we talk about like wealth inequality and everything like that. It's just the amount of stress it, it relieves. And, you know, uh, one of the, the, the studies that I often point to is just when, when you are, you know, low on money, like you're constantly making, you're making way more decisions than the average person, right? Like when I was broke, like just uh, going to the gas station, how much can I put in my car and still afford groceries? and diapers and baby formula. I just made way more decisions, which is more cognitively taxing. And now I make worse decisions later because I've just used up all my brain energy, right? So like the amount of stress it relieves. And, you know, my, my experience was, you know, I grew up, um, you know, my mom was an alcoholic. My dad raised me. We, you know, we were like lower middle class, whatever, but he was always like, you know, um, borrowing from, Paul to pay Peter or however that goes. Right. And things like that. And I saw how that went. And when, uh, you know, before I got sober, I was getting in the same habits and so stressful and trying to keep track of all these things. And just like, when I got sober and started to get on my feet, it was like, no, I don't want to be financially dependent on anyone. Especially like you, like you just mentioned, like, you know, I didn't want to like go to my parents and ask them to borrow money and stuff. Like, let me tell you, like I've done that and it doesn't always work out, you know, like there's nothing worse than be like, okay, I don't want to go to that option. And then you do go to that option and it still doesn't work out, right? So I've worked my ass off to just make sure I don't need anybody. But also like, especially because your, your, your book is so much about women. Like I've worked, you know, just working in rehab, so many women come from abusive relationships, traumatic experiences, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but like one of the number one issues, like in like a domestic violence, abusive relationship is that the woman is cut off from like financial, any kind of financial security. Right. 
So like, can you speak to like why that's important and why, you know, we shouldn't just like go to the default of like, oh, just be a, just be a stay at home mom, you know, especially if like, there's might be some red flags in the air. You know what I mean? I do. So it's interesting. I think obviously if you're in a stable, healthy relationship and you want to be a stay at home mom and you can afford to be a stay at home mom, more power to you. But if you're doing it really because your partner is pressuring you to do that, or you feel some kind of societal guilt to do that, and you're not in a good relationship, you're setting yourself up, I think, to be very, very vulnerable. And it's going to be harder to extricate yourself for the reasons that you said. You you have no means to support yourself. And I also think it has this, this psychological effect where you feel even more disempowered, right? And even more trapped. And so mm. I do think you're right. There's a direct line between People who are stuck in the cycle of intimate partner violence or toxic relationships and money and mm -hmm. economic stability and a way to get out that doesn't require going on food stamps. And so I do think for that reason alone, it's very, very important to feel like you always have a way to support yourself. And I think you make another point, which is when you're making a decision between baby formula and gas money. You don't want to be in that situation. You don't want to be in a situation wondering whether it's about filling up your car or feeding your kid. And when filling up your car is, is your way to get to work. Yeah. So all of this is tied into, I think, being a good parent because a kid in a, in a toxic home where they know that one partner is, is being abused or they know that the parents are just deeply unhappy and there's substance abuse or there's adultery, there's what have you, they know. And so people like to say, I stayed for the children mm -hmm. and I can't stand that <laughs> yeah. because those are the people in the worst relationships who tend to have pretty damaged kids or at least yeah. kids who come out and think marriage is awful. Long-term relationships are awful because of what they've been exposed to. So I think in a lot of ways, this idea that like anything is better than a broken family, I was, I say broken in quotes, yeah. is so misguided. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. There's just, there's just so many things that are just ingrained in us, you know, uh, and that's, that's one of them too. Yes. Like two parents together trumps everything. It doesn't matter if there's like physical violence, verbal abuse, adultery, substance, just nothing, just none of it matters as long as there are two parents together. It's like, like, just think about how insane that sounds like, just take a step back, you know, but, but yeah, like on the, on the topic of just like finances, I was just thinking like, I just can't. I can't even begin to count how many women I can I had come through rehab, right? And their number one challenge, like, like, cause something I would ask them when I was doing groups and stuff like that, like, okay, let's discuss what are some of the challenges you are going to face when you go back home? We had a lot of people from like out of state who came in, you know, uh, but like, what are some of the challenges you're going to fa face? Right. And it's like their partner, you know, either their partner was their using buddy or they used to numb themselves from the relationship, you know? and and I'd ask them, I'd be like, okay, well, why, why can't you leave? Number one is finances. Number one thing, right? How am I going to pay my bills? Where am I going to leave? That, 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 all these different things. And that's why I think like books like yours are just so important that talk about this and pursuing it because like, there's just so many things, especially that you address in the book that are just like deeply rooted in us. Like you bring up so many things and this is like, like, I don't mean to be like one of those guys, but this is why I think more guys need to read books like this, like, because there are things that don't even cross our mind right i'm like damn Lara, like you're right like i never even thought about that you know but um 
yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit before and I only have a little bit more of your time. Uh, we hopped on this call right after the news, the official news about Roe v. Wade. And this kind of ties into what we're talking about right now, right? A, a woman's ability to be financially independent, pursue her goals, dreams, and all that kind of stuff. So what, what are some things that have been on your mind and what, what do you think are some ways women can hopefully navigate this with what's happening right now? Before you and I started recording, we were talking about our mutual favorite person, Jill Filipovich, and mm. her new piece reacting to Roe and talking about how it's beyond our worst nightmares in the sense that it's really potentially an impediment to women living their full lives up to their full potential. If they're having children that they can't afford to have and don't want to have, then they're not able to, to stay in school. They're not able to pursue a profession. They're not able to become economically independent. And there's so many reasons to be devastated by this decision, including that it really is signaling to women that we're, that we're lesser, that we don't have the same rights, that, that your rights to bear arms exceed your rights to control your own body. There's so many reasons to be disturbed about this, but one of them is that consequence, that downstream consequence of bearing children basically forcibly and what that does to your ability to live the rest of your life. And it's hard not to feel, I think, just devastated today because we just found out, I think, an hour and a half ago about this decision and all that it means. But one thing it drives home to me is once again, the importance of women standing up for our rights and fighting back on every possible level, whether it's battling in the state, whether it's electing people to go to Congress to try to enshrine this right in federal law, as terrible as Congress is and is usually ineffective as it is, whether it's fighting back and making this a big issue in the midterm so that they're not what everyone's predicting will be a bloodbath for the blue team. So I... I also feel like there's this way in which the Supreme Court is seeming more and more regressive and anti-anti-women, anti-LGBTQ, anti-trans, anti-name-your-discreet and insular minority. That's a quote from a long-ago constitutional textbook that I read in law school. <laughs> it does seem like they are turning on all of us. And the best way to fight back is to have the time and the money and the brain space. And yeah. you cannot do that when you are trapped in the way that you and I have been talking about. You cannot do that when your whole day is made up of how am I going to survive to tomorrow? Uh, how am I going to buy gas versus baby formula, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, you know, um, like couple of weeks ago when the leak, when the draft leak happened and everything, and a lot of people were just, you know, covering it and talking about it. I remember watching something that was just sharing the story of this one woman who like, she had two or three kids already, you know, providing for them and stuff. And then just boom, accidental pregnancy happened. Right. And, you know, I, I, I think about that as well, because we're, you know, when, when the new kids added to the mix, I only, I only have one child, but you know, I know a lot of parents with multiple kids, but just the adjustments that have to happen, right? Now you're looking at your finances in a different way. You have two children, your time is different. Right. And, you know, so even just in the context of your life, like there are mothers who are going to be looking at, you know, this and being in these 
really difficult situations and it drives me nuts too because my girlfriend and i <laughs> she just finished uh grad school for social work and she uh she already just hopped into a you know a, a job and everything and we were just talking about how people people neglect like the effort it takes when you're coming from low like low income or just straight up nothing right like when i first got sober I had no license, no money, no nothing. It was just getting on the bus. Uh, the the first real job I had back here in Vegas, it was two and a half hours each way on a bus oh. for minimum wage job, right? Oh and and I remember just something as simple as like, you know, because I have my son on the weekends, it's like, let's go to a movie and just the effort. But anyways, what I'm saying is just getting to your appointments on low income, like to go to the social services office or like the welfare office and Medicare office and all these things. And you add a child to the mix, right? You even add a toddler and a baby. Like there's so many things. And like, I, I just, it just doesn't feel like a lot of people from the upper classes really realize like, cause they're like, Oh, what there's, there's resources just go, you know, and we can't even get like uh, you know, universal pre-K and stuff like that. Like, it's, I can go on about this just forever, but let me ask you this. There's a question I was asking around on Twitter about, and I'm just like, oh, wait, Laura's a, a lawyer. So I know your specialty is not constitutional law, right? But everybody, I look around and everybody's like, expand the Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. And I am unfamiliar. Are you, do you have any idea, like, is that possible? What would that look like? You know, because anyways, I, I guess I'm trying to find a glimmer of hope because the Democrats are like, go out there and vote. And I'm like, mother effers, I keep coming out to vote and you guys aren't doing shit, right? <laughs> so, I share your frustration, <laughs> so, so do you know if that's like possible, how it is? Like, what are your thoughts on something like that? Sure. So the answer is yes, it's possible. There's nothing in the constitution that says there have to be nine justices or 90. It can really be any number, but to change the number, Congress would have to pass legislation. So you'd have to get it through the House and the Senate. And of course, as you know, the Republicans have zero incentive to change the number of justices since they have six completely captured, which is the two thirds, right? So it would require electing enough Democrats in the House and the Senate who were willing to sign on to that legislation. So just to be clear, you know, right now they have this razor thin majority in the Senate because Kamala Harris cast the tie-breaking vote, right? Mm -hmm. Of those 50, not all 50, maybe not even half would be in favor of that kind of expansion. So not only would you have to elect Democrats, you'd have to elect Democrats who think that is a good idea. So while it is mm -hmm. theoretically possible, I do not think it's likely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm constantly like looking at different things like because beforehand, before this was like solidified, a lot of people were talking about like, you know, making this like codifying it into law, mm -hmm. right? Like, are these things like even still on the table? Like what, to your knowledge, like what are the different what are the different options, right? So we just talked about that, like electing like 8,000 Democrats who believe, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then hoping that they don't all turn into mansion and cinema, you know, and stuff like that. Like, so like to your knowledge, what are some different options on the table to protect not just like women's rights, but like, you know, trans rights and, you know, <laughs> like all sorts of other rights. What other things are we kind of looking at? I think the most realistic option would be for all of these rights, including, as you say, 
the right, for example, for for trans people not to be discriminated against or maybe to fight back against the horrible things that are happening in Florida where they're going after the parents, things like Mm -hmm. that, or with respect to the right to abortion. The best bet is to get some kind of federal legislation in place. And, you know, after the Dobbs opinion leaked the draft, there was talk on the Hill of trying to pass something that would essentially codify Roe. And it fell apart in for two reasons. I mean, it fell apart because the Democrats put things in there that were essentially poison pills. They went beyond Roe. And so it just was not going to ever attract the amount of support that it was going to be needed for it to be passed into the law. So could there be a more modified version mm-hmm. that at least protects some kind of abortion that Congress could pass? Yes. Is there legislation that they could pass that would prevent states from doing things like prosecuting women who have miscarriages and go to the, I mean, you know, the yeah. things that are happening right now are pretty scary. And so the answer to that is they could. It's just, do they have the will to do that? And do they have the votes to do that? I think personally, those kinds of legislative remedies seem more likely to me than say changing the number of justices from from nine to 15 or what have you. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best example of things like that are in California where I live. And obviously we have Democratic supermajorities. But if you had yeah. a Democratic supermajority, you could do all of those things. So we don't like a lot of Supreme Court law. We just passed something called a Racial Justice Act. What that does is effectively overrule two Supreme Court cases that are pretty horrible. One is called McCluskey versus Kemp, which says, even though we know full well that the death penalty overwhelmingly is weaponized against people of color in cases with white victims, too bad, so sad. Mm. Well, in California, no. Now that's not okay. If you can make a showing that it's disproportionate, even if you can't prove intent, you win. It's the same thing with Batson. Batson says, well, if you seat an all-white jury, but there's race-neutral reasons for booting off every black and brown person, too bad, so sad. But now in California, that's not true. In California, if you can show you struck every single person, I don't care why, of color. I don't care what explanation you have. As Mm -hmm. a result, we have a jury that's not representative of the community. You win. And so... I think there are ways and we've mm-hmm. shown that. However, California is extremely unusual because we have super majorities. Yeah. You know, something I was just thinking about, you know, this morning as well, was I see people like sharing like, you know, maps about, you know, what states are going to be effective, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. affected. So you, you're in California. I'm from California and I only moved like one state over. So I'm in Las Vegas. We're democratic, right? So things are crazy with our elections right now. For the most part, I think we're going to be all right. But anyways, something I'm thinking about is like, how do people like us in our states, like keep the energy going, right? Because a lot of stuff is like out of sight, out of mind. You know what I mean? And this is going to affect a lot of like, you know, Bible Belt states, right? Midwest states, like those those red states and where there are a lot of, there's a lot of like income disparity and it's going to affect, you know, uh, people who don't make that much money. It's going to affect minorities and all these other things. So like, do you have any like thoughts about just like keeping the conversation going, making sure like those of us in these like really blue states, like forget about how like people are being affected across the country? God, that is such a great question, right? Because it's so painful and you just want to turn your face away from it. And if you mm-hmm. live in a blue state, you can't because in California, it doesn't affect your right to have an abortion at all. And let's say they overturn, God forbid, Obergefell. 
yeah. it won't affect people's rights who are LGBTQ in our state. We will go out of our way to protect people. And so if you live here, the temptation is almost to think, I just am going to pretend that we've seceded from the rest of this country and not look over. But you can't do that. And as, as you and I both know, the people who are going to suffer because of Dobbs are poor women. Rich women in these red states, they're going to be able to buy their way out of this. They're going to fly somewhere. They're going to go to Mexico. They're going to do whatever they have to do to get that abortion. It's the poor mm -hmm. women. And so we've got to focus on them and figure out ways to get them to mm -hmm. a state where they can get the procedure that yeah. they need. And, and the other thing that scares me is that a lot of these states are going further and trying to criminalize that, trying to criminalize yeah. people who help those women, trying mm -hmm. to criminalize the women who cross state lines, right? And so, again, we go back to what are the remedies for that? Can we urge Congress to disallow that kind of targeting of people who, who just want to be able to control their own destiny? And, yeah. you know, I wish I had an easy set of answers for you, but I, I understand the problem that you're pointing to. And it's a temptation. It's a huge temptation to just look away. Yeah. Because we can afford to. And, and the truth is we really can't because if we care about justice and equality, then we care about it for everybody, including and especially the people who are voiceless and powerless. And so we have to always be thinking of ways to help them. Yeah, no, abs absolutely. And, and that's something that I, I just try to try to keep in mind. Like if you just, if you just try to keep in mind, like, Hey, that's trying to help everybody. Like, cool. <laughs> you know, like if you look at like all the stuff being passed down from like Washington, DC, you're like, okay, how does this affect everybody? Then it's like, okay, cool. Because it includes the rest of the states and everything. But just with a little bit of more of your time, uh, there's a, a Chris, can I say one thing about this, which just occurred to me? me? Sorry I, to interrupt you. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, like <clears throat> in 2019, my, my sister asked me to help this guy in Louisiana who who was saying that he was wrongfully convicted. And my first response was, no, I don't practice law in Louisiana. I've never been to Louisiana. <laughs> and my first response was no. And then I thought about it and I thought, well, if I don't do it, no one else will. So I, I learned Louisiana law. I got admitted pro hoc vice and, you know, now he's out. And then I had the same thing happen the following year where someone asked me to help someone in Indiana. I had the same response. I've never been to Indiana. I don't know anything about Indiana law. Guess what? This guy doesn't have anybody else. So I've learned about Indiana law and now I've been admitted to practice there. Like <laughs> my point being that your initial reaction of like, this isn't my problem. This is a red state where I've never been. No, has to change to this is my problem. I'm going to learn what I need to learn to be helpful. I, and that's a, that's a small example. But I think maybe I need to kind of, in my own mind, apply that to things like women seeking abortions. Okay, go ahead. Your yeah, question. now, see, look, now now I can go on forever. No, that's, that's the same thing. The whole reason I started my YouTube channel, which focused around mental health and addiction, was I was working at the rehab, realized how expensive it was, how many people don't have health insurance. I'm like, I could do free YouTube videos and get the message out to people out there right? Here's what you could do. Here are options. If you can't afford rehab, if you can't afford therapy, if you can't, you know, and stuff like that. Like, I just want to educate people. Here's things that you could do that, you know, people say is like a good self-help remedy, but anyways, yeah, just trying to think of these little things that we could do while balancing the whole life, yes. <laughs> all the yes. other stuff. But you know, what I wanted to ask, uh, which is a, a tough one, uh, it is how, and I don't even know if this crossed your mind yet, or maybe it has since like, the decision got leaked. Like, how do you plan on talking with your children about this type of stuff? I am the father of just one little son. 
right? And I try to teach him what I can. And he has a lot of great women around him. So they're doing good, like educating him. But you have a son and a daughter. Like, is it too soon, like in your parental style to talk with them about this? When, you know what I mean? Because you you discuss like, you know, you're going to have to talk with your daughter about like just being an, an ambitious woman and pursuing her goals and dreams and stuff. So have you thought about that at all yet? In answer to your question, it is not too soon. When my son was having breakfast this morning, I told him about the ruling mm-hmm. and my daughter's at camp right now. But when she comes home, I fully intend to have a conversation with her. My kids have both had they call them puberty classes in school where they're learning about sex ed and things like that and they mm. come up with questions and i always ask answer as honestly as i can because i think it's really important not to not to feel like certain things are off limits or shameful in any way yep. and a hundred percent i plan to talk about this issue and answer their questions and also hopefully inspire them to grow up and push back i don't think when you're 11 and 13 that that you could be kept in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I love reading books about when morality develops in kids. And the Mm -hmm. way I talk to my son, when I talk to him about social issues and stuff, I I laid out simple. I'm like, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's right? You know what I mean? Because I I never like, if my my kid for some reason just turned into like a super conservative, cool, right? But I want to talk with him, push back where I can, just get him thinking. Uh, you know, I've talked about on recent episodes, like we're reading books to develop his critical thinking skills, know about biases and heuristics and all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, like I, I just like, I, I say, Hey, here's what's going on in the world. Do you think this is okay? Do you think this is right? You know? So it's like, okay, well, what can we do about it and stuff like that? But last question ended on this. How, how do you, how are you talking to your kids about that strong work ethic while also take being there for like friends, family members and stuff like that. Right. Because you kind of tackle the whole, like, oh, this toxic idea of like hustle and working hard, you know, which we could spend a whole other hour on because I think you could, I think you could work hard without being caught up in quote unquote hustle culture. Right. But, uh, yeah. How, how do you plan on talking to your kids about that? Is there any like red flag you'll see? Like if your daughter is just working way too hard and you're like, Hey girl, you got to dial it back a few notches you know how what are some of the tips you can give to all the listeners out there before they buy your amazing book to me the best tip i can give is to be radically transparent so i try to be that way with my children i try to be that way with my students i try to be that way with my colleagues i think it's really important to show that it's kind of a messy imperfect situation i think especially women are taught you're supposed to make it look easy. You're supposed to make it look like these two worlds are hermetically sealed off. You come home and just automatically you're in mom mode. You go to work and automatically you're in professional mm-hmm. mode. And the truth is there's a lot of seepage. Things just kind of bleed in and out. And and I think that's not just okay. It's completely normal. And so that's what I try to show my kids is that I'm doing the best I can. And sometimes I fall on my face and sometimes I am a patient and sometimes I take a call at dinner that I shouldn't have or whatever. And it's okay. It's okay. And not just that, I think modeling, modeling imperfection, that Mm. you're striving always to be better, but also that you're wildly imperfect is a way to make them understand that you're a whole person, that you're, yes, their parent and the guardian of their interests. You're also a human being who fucks up. 
And it's the same thing at work. Like I'll say to my colleagues, you know, no, I can't go to that meeting because right now I have to go get my son or I want to go see his baseball game. I'm sorry. And I don't know. I feel like both of those things should be okay. And so I guess my, my parting advice for what it's worth is really just to be honest. And I think when you are, and also vulnerable, there's a strength in that. There's a strength in vulnerability. People respond to that with a lot of compassion and understanding, and it allows them to think it's okay for me to be that way too. Yeah, no, that is, that is excellent. I couldn't agree more. And just showing that we're, we're human, we're fallible. Like that's something that I like really strive to do ever since I got sober is that radical transparency. And, and I've noticed just even, even the ability to go to a boss and say, Hey, I screwed this up, right? Here's my plan to fix it and stuff. Cause I used to just try to like sweep it under the rug, uh, you know, getting irritable with my son or whatever, cause I'm busy and I can go back and apologize to him later because sometimes the ego gets in the way or this fear that he won't respect me. If I say I screwed up, sorry for snapping at you, but you know, it's helped him start doing that and coming back and apologizing. If he was in one of those little teenager moods and all that, but, but Laura, like I loved your book so much. And it's, it's like one that I can see myself returning to again. I hope everybody gets it. So just a couple things, where can people find you and where, can they find the book like on an international level? Is it, is it out everywhere? Just in the States, two releases, one lay it on us. It is. It's definitely out of the States and it's available wherever books are sold. If you want to pick your favorite indie store, they will give it to you. And yeah, I just, we sold the rights to Central America and Mexico. And I think we're, I think Australia. So Mm. if you have Australian and Central American listeners, it's out for them too. And you can find me on Twitter at Laura Bazelon, um, on Instagram, same handle. And if you really want to learn more about me, there's also my website, which is just laurabazelon.com. Beautiful. Well, I appreciate you coming back on. And I don't know if you have another book in the works, but if you do, we'll bring you back here. Awesome. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me back. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laura about uh, you know, her new book, what's going on, you know, with Roe v. Wade and all of that. But yeah, I, I really hope that if nothing else, you, you walk away with, you know, some, some solutions and a little bit of hope, right? Like it sounds cheesy as hell, right? But my hope is the thing that keeps me going. Okay. The first book that I wrote, it was titled hope because that's what saved my life when I got sober, right? I thought that I was going to die before the age of 30 as a drug addict and alcoholic. My son was not going to have a father and I was completely hopeless, but I started, you know, focusing on, you know, solutions. I stopped, you know, drowning in my problems. I realized like, Hey, there's a time, there's a time to get angry, sad, pissed, whatever it is. There's a time for that. Right. But what are we going to do about it? And the thing is, People bank on us sitting back and doing nothing, right? And that's why I love talking with people like Lara about solutions. Like, what do we do? Where do we go from here? What are our options? You know, because it can seem, it can seem like we're doing a lot by, you know, arguing with people on Twitter, calling them stupid, pointing out, you know, their flawed logic and reasoning. Like all that makes us feel great. We feel like really big, smart internet, you know, warriors and stuff like that. And Hey, don't get me wrong. I love a good sass 
on the internet, right? But what are we doing about it? You know, uh, the the midterms are coming up. Like I said in this episode with Laura, like I get it. I get people who feel hopeless and are just like, why am I going to go do anything about this? Right. But, you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm not telling anybody what to do. Right. But for me personally, it's like, I, I'm at the point where it's like lesser of two evils. Let's do that while also working on uh, getting better people to represent us in the future. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, okay, get this person in office, keep working on other stuff to replace that person later and all that. But Something, you know, something else right before, you know, I started editing this and everything like I, I was really, you know, thinking about and reading about and hearing other people talk about like, this is, this is the time to really focus on local politics and state politics, right? Like our senators and representatives are in a really tricky position. Okay. They're in a really, really, really tough position. And when it's time to vote, I think it's important to do as much research as possible, see what people are for, what they're against, not just what they're saying, but what their voting history looks like as well. That's just, that's just how I get down. But when these people are pressured on this local level, that that's when we see some change happen. So anyways, anyways, uh, Laura, she is, you know, amazing, way more knowledgeable about me than me. Make sure you follow her on Twitter. And like I said, her book, is phenomenal and you know like i said it's not just for mothers it's for fathers too but i think it's important for anybody who is ambitious right because like we discussed in this conversation it's about making sacrifices looking at the big picture knowing that you're not going to ruin everything right laura in the book discusses like you know what happened with her marriage and all that like our, our relationships with significant others could be a little bit different but at the same time, it's something we didn't uh, get a chance to dive into yet is like me, I, you know, found my wonderful girlfriend, we've been together for about six years, who understood my ambition and a huge part of my life is finding uh, uh, the give and take of it all, right? Like if I, if I hustle and work hard, you know, for X amount of days or X amount of hours, I also make sure to block out time to spend time with my girlfriend, my son, and all of that. Right. So if you are an ambitious person, get this, get this book. If you want to be an ambitious person, get this book. All right. Just, just get the dang book. So head down to the description, follow Laura over on uh, Twitter. Make sure uh, you grab a copy of the book, which is linked down below. And before I let you go, remember the link to uh, Jill Filipovich's piece is down below. Subscribe to her podcast. And if you're new, make sure you're following and subscribe to the podcast. If you're not, make sure you're following me over on Twitter and Instagram at The Rewired Soul. And if you want to help out the podcast, something you can do that's absolutely free. And I think it's also important because we talked about some important stuff here. Share this episode, share it out there, share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, email it, whatever you got, share it out there. And uh, if you have two seconds, go leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. But yeah, all that stuff really helps uh, with the algorithms and all that weird stuff going on behind the scenes. Some other things you could do. Um, one, I have a Substack. stack. Uh, Everything I write is absolutely free, but there is a paid option. And for $5 a month or $50 for the year, uh, something I give back to you for supporting what I'm doing here is you get all of these episodes a day early. All right. And then lastly, lastly, there is an affiliate link 
down below for better help online therapy. Mental health is a huge part of just not only my recovery from addiction, but also I struggle with depression, anxiety, hopelessness, just life in general and all that. And BetterHelp is a service that I have personally used. So if you're dealing with some stuff and you would like, you know, some professional help, BetterHelp, it's affordable, super convenient. You could do it, you know, via like uh, FaceTime, you could do it through chat, you could do it through calls and it's affordable and you'll be working with a licensed therapist from your state. And something that I really loved about uh, working with BetterHelp was they make it super easy to switch therapists. Because it's like super awkward when you don't like your therapist and you gotta like break up with them. Well, with BetterHelp, you just boom, you click a button, find you a new therapist. Super easy, not awkward. So if you're interested in that, check out that affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Anyways, another huge, huge thanks to uh, Laura for coming on to chat about her new book. Make sure you follow her, grab a copy of Ambitious Like a Mother. It is out now. And for all of you, don't lose hope, all right? Have a great rest of your day. At least try to, you know, use, use this anger, this frustration or whatever, turn it into something good, whether it's, you know, uh, talking with other people, sharing your, your story, your experience, you know, your opinions, right. But make sure to turn that into action. Just my opinion. That's what I think we all got to do. Okay. But I will have a brand new episode for you next week. So until then take care and I will see you next time.